This podcast, number 810, with Kim Law, is brought to you by Alan Thomas Brown, author of a new book entitled Dancing Through Life, Indulge Your Dreams and Pursue Life's Possibilities. Please listen to Alan and Greg as they talk about life and wisdom. In this interview, Alan provides insights about life with his wisdom of over 80 years of being on this planet. If you want to learn how to truly live life and remove the fear, this interesting interview is for you. To learn more about Alan and his book, please visit his website at www.alanthomasbrown.com That's A-L-L-E-N-T-H-O-M-A-S brown.com Thanks for listening and now please stand by for Greg's interview with Kim Law about the book Compassionate Conversations How to Speak and Listen from the Heart Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth This is Greg Poisson, the host of Inside Personal Growth and joining me from uh, Humboldt, California Actually, I met Kim here in San Diego uh, but she's now living in Humboldt. For many of you who know Northern California area, the big redwoods, what a beautiful place to be. And we have uh, Kim Lowe. She is joining us. And there are three other authors or two other authors, I should say, with this book as well. It's a Shambhala book. And Kim, if you would hold the book up, it's called Compassionate Conversations. And I will have to say during this time of COVID and unrest and Black Lives Matter, there probably couldn't be a more timely topic. Good day to you, Cam. How are you doing? Good day to you. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show. We've known each other quite some time. And now that you've relocated, I'm, um, I'm a bit, oh, like, oh, no, I won't be able to see Kim. But um, maybe I'll have to go to Northern California to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to let people know a little bit about you, Kim. She started her career as a lawyer in London and Singapore, uh, where she cut her teeth in the field of litigation and arbitration, learning how to negotiate high-value, high-stakes disputes in international and corporate fields. She had a huge turning point, which came through the work of one of her teachers, who's expanded my world view by incorporating integral and Zen Buddhist lens to conflict work, helping me understand not only that much more was available, but that it was a necessary part of our growth to find these ways. And boy, is that true. I try and find more compassionate ways. Um, my brother, or my brother-in-law, who's an attorney, always says, if there wasn't avarice and greed, there wouldn't be any lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. And so the point is, is that that's it. She has a master's from Columbia University in negotiation and conflict resolution and later supported the program post-grad resolution strategies course as a teaching associate. Um, she has extensive background in this and this new book, if you'd hold it back up again, that would be great. So my listeners can see this beautiful book, Shambhala book. I'm going to highly recommend that everybody go out and get it. And the only reason that I don't have it is because I they don't have a copy for me yet, but I'm going to get a copy. Otherwise, I'd be holding it up. Um, Kim is the co-author on this book. It's not just Kim's book. And I want to make sure that your um, 
associates and co-authors get credit. Uh, Diane Hamilton and Gabriel Wilson are also co-authors on this book with Kim, and they had huge contributions to the book as well. Um, so kudos to both of them for what they did and to Kim because we couldn't want a more important time to have this. So Kim, let's just dig right in. Um, you and your fellow authors came from really diverse cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and it's very apparent the way you wrote it in the book. And how do you believe that this factor affected the book in a positive way? And what do you want the listeners who are now listening right now uh, to learn from compassionate conversations? Mm, great question. And, and thanks for your, your book supportive words. It um, means a lot to me. So, yeah, with the three of us do have some differences that we're holding between us. Diane grew up in Utah and she was um, in horse riding competitions. And Gabe grew up between Brazil and the States. Um, and his, he comes from a background really in, in education and working with diversity. Diane is just a, a real wild flame out there in the, in the Utah kind of red rock. She got into Zen and integral ways, I think quite early on. And, um, and then for my part, I grew up between London, Hong Kong and Singapore. And I suppose I specialize more in the, um, the conflict resolution part and mediation part. And, and, I, and I hold some different sort of cultural pieces in me from having moved around so much. Um, that said, you know, we hold tremendous amount of sameness. We have this same desire to work in this field and contribute towards more productive and compassionate conversations. And we all hold a relative amount of privilege, you know, such that we can actually, you know, take the time to write down these kinds of things in, in a book and collaborate through that process. Um, and we also share the Zen tradition. We're all students. Diane is a master teacher within Zen. And um, so we kind of held this all in a big soup, navigating our sameness and our difference. And as we diverged sometimes in our views, we began to um, trust our ability to continue returning, rejoining and meeting one another, you know, and maintaining positive regard and positive respect for each other, even though we might have different views at times. And so we became to, you know, very trusting in this process. And I think to the final bit of your question, what I'd love for listeners to learn and receive from compassionate conversations is that, you know, sometimes engaging in these conversations is not easy, but it is tremendously worth our while. Um, when we can connect with compassion and, and a directness, you know, that is honest um, we bring vibrancy and, and realness to our relationships and that can move us deeper into mutual understanding and learning and ultimately acceptance of who we are as a humanity, you know, through all of our differences. Um, and, you know, so inspirationally, energetically, I hope that this can inspire the hearts of the readers that through doing this work together, we can go in the direction of creating a more loving and beautiful world. That's very well said. And I think that, you know, given the kind of uh, agitation that's out there and conflict in the world, it seems to be. I, I always say seems to be because it's always the perspective in which people choose to look at things. It's their purview of the world. Um, but, you know, uh, if my listeners 
turn on a radio or a television or look on the internet, they're going to see this. And if you would speak with our listeners about how uh, talking about and understanding our differences can be done in a new way and with more compassion and more heartfelt. I know when I was a student in the master's degree in spiritual psychology, we always talked about heartfelt communications. And I, I think the the key here really is, as you say, looking at our differences and understanding them, but finding a way to do that. What would you tell our listeners that they need to kind of dig deep to do to have this level of compassionate conversation? Mm. Such a good question. And I also perceive it to be a timely one. Um, I think that going to the heart of it, um, there, there needs to be some level that we are some level of acceptance that we do accept the differences between us. We allow ourselves to be different human beings, different journeys, different ways of making sense of the world and carrying different questions, you know, and, and maybe different areas where we might be really honing our lens of justice and asking, you know, asking for more. Um, I think that where we fall into problems is when we ascribe judgment to our differences about how we are different you know, things can become better or worse or good or bad or right or wrong. And obviously, when we, when we attribute those to things like identity differences, skin color, language, you know, m- mindset or worldview, when we make some of these better or, or worse, then those differences quickly become threats. And left unchecked when it's armed and dangerous, the ethnocentric tendencies in us are probably some of the most dangerous on the planet. And maybe we'll go into that later, what it is to have an ethnocentric mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> mentality. We are going to cover like, that. <laughs> great. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one of the questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. so, so it's acknowledging these truths of how we are. We are imperfect. We do not know yet fully how to navigate this terrain. And so it's stretching us. It's growing us. And if you ask the question about how can we include more compassion and heartfulness in that there are some pieces that we come back to affirm in the book, um, which I think are very important. And one of them that I should just say outright, you know, um, in case people don't listen any further, like it's listening doesn't equate agreement to be listed, to be listening to someone, to be present to them. It doesn't mean that you fully subscribe. And now that becomes the one central piece of the truth. I think that's what trips us up quite early on when we have a hard time listening, talking about our differences Um, another huge piece that we emphasize in the book is that we have to work with our bodies. We have to go through this vehicle of our bodies to retrain sometimes or better regulate our nervous systems. Because when we believe that difference has become threat, our whole physiology, you know, our adrenaline, our hormonal system changes, and it can literally cut us off from some parts of our brain that would actually allow us to continue operating in a compassionate and heartful way. So working with our bodies, improving our capacity to hold more different perspectives once we've built that base in which we can continue to listen. And, and, you know, when we have that increased capacity, we're actually more spacious to learn. We're more empathetic. We can relate better. We take things less personally. And that to me is, are these little, the, the sort of strands of color that are in compassion. Like that is what that behavior is. It's allowing people to hold their own respective truths 
knowing that they are true but partial that doesn't have to be all encompassing and mm-hmm. and our unity and diversity has to be that we can hold all of that difference together here well one thing that um interested me uh in particular and it's, it goes along with this next question is just the way our brains are wired okay over the millions of years of evolution um you know we have transformed as communicators um, you know, I'm thinking of, I'm, in my mind, the first thing I saw when I read this was a caveman grunting, right? Um, trying to communicate something versus the eloquency of which we can communicate today. But with that eloquency has come a lot of misunderstanding. I actually think maybe the cavemen in their simplicity uh, maybe had a better way to communicate. They might not have been very compassionate about it, but they did. And that today, this unfolding is still occurring, right? It's not like we're done evolving. So how do we address the aspirations for equality and the biases, the, the blind spots um, that are inherent in human beings? And what do we do to transform the behavior and our mindsets? Because, you know, it's, it's, Kim, it's a bit like being on automatic pilot. People don't even know they have the biases. It's just, it's, it's hidden within them. And they'll come out with a stupid statement, which is very racist or something like that. Um, and I think it's, it's an evolution of the whole being, not just of, you know, this element to communicate. It's really about becoming a compassionate being. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what what would you tell our listeners about this evolutionary process and how they might rejigger themselves or remind themselves that those biases exist, that either it's okay to have them, but they need to recognize and be aware they're there, uh, whatever that might be. What would you, mm-hmm. what would your group comment about that? Mm. It's a really great, great question. And I love the way that you kind of created that. I, I feel in my mind, it's a journey and we are expanding, deepening, going into ourselves, learning more about this system that we're in, all the, you know, the systems that we're in. We're, so I suppose when I make that comment, it's like, to me, when I conceive of this evolutionary push, um, it has a quality of um, including more complexity. And so one of the great challenges for us is to firstly allow ourselves to go there, to be stretched by new information, by different kinds of, say, global challenges that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And then bringing it sort of back to center, integrate, asking what, what can we do with this all? And so when you talk about that person, a human being, any of the listeners, you or me, as having those aspirations um, and at the same time having biases and blind spots, I think mm-hmm. that it's helpful if we can all um, – just come from a place of humility, acknowledging that, you know, we are necessarily limited in our view and it's not a bad thing. We have two eyes coming out the front of our head. We can't see behind us literally. And that's why we need others. We're in this together. And when we can um, include more perspectives, include more viewpoints, include more complexity, we 
are then engaging in that stretching process. And it's a bit like working out your muscles. Sometimes yeah. you're going to feel, you know, uncomfortable. If someone points out a bias or a blind spot, it can, fe- it can feel like shame, you know. It can feel really like shutting oneself down, not wanting to engage. But that's because we have perceived it to be so threatening. The egocentric self is not holding up you know, we could say in that moment to the threat to its its sense of self, its stability. So, but Diane, we are talking about the I. So, what happens when you notice someone do it and it upsets you, mm-hmm. and it creates conflict or agitation within you? How do you address the other person? Because now we're at the I level, not the mm-hmm. we level. So, what would you tell a listener? Really practical. It's like hey, my buddy just made a comment, I don't like it yet, am I going to just let that go by? Or am I willing to stand up and be heard and address it? Or what? how, how would you approach that situation? Mm, yeah, that's an interesting one. I think then we can start getting into like the specifics of how these things occur. To me, when you ask that question, though, what comes to mind is um, <clears throat> like it starts to to break down into these different rooms that I'm curious about. One of the rooms that I'm curious about might be um, what was triggered in you by the thing that was said. What does that tell you about yourself, you know, about what you value, what you care about, what you're seeking to protect, you know, the worldview that you wish was true for everyone else, but clearly is not the case. I would get curious about that as one thing. And then um, two, I would wonder like, what is the nature of this relationship and what's the nature of the conversation? There are some conversations which are better better primed to have those kinds of interventions. There are some relationships which behold more trust and they're easier to say, hey, friend, I actually take issue with something that you said. Can we talk about it? You know? So it's also thinking about what's the intention that's being said? What's the intention of the other person? That's another thing I'm curious about. What do they mean by that? Maybe I can ask more questions. Maybe I can learn more about what they're saying rather than reacting to what's in my mind in the first room because that often happens. Someone says something and then we create a lot of associations with what we believe that means. I think that's a really important point you make is that, you know, we have, you have a a natural reaction Uh and react, not act. Um, And in in so doing, it brings up emotions with inside you and those emotions bring up strong feelings or feelings bring up these emotions, however you want to put it. And then you'll say something in the moment that you regret you said um, because you are very fired by it. But I think one of the things you talk about repeatedly in the book, because you guys are all Zen Buddhists is, is breathing and being aware and taking in deep breaths before you do that. I think there's simple little things people can do to actually uh, maybe stop an action that may cause a lot more challenge for them uh, than, than they want. Um, So I think that's important. And, you know, you and the co-authors believe, and I'm going to move to a different topic because I want to keep us moving forward so we can get as many questions in um, that diversity and social justice work must happen in relationship with those who are different from us. Otherwise, we run the risk of asserting our age-old tribal habits and being bound up in the intractable power struggles, which is what I was saying, that always go along with exclusive commitment to our own group. So maybe it was a group that that I was in. Uh, How would you recommend that we go about having meaningful conversations 
without, and that the key word for me in this statement in the book was power struggles. Because right now in this country, it's Republican versus Democrat. It's the president tweeting out this morning he's not going to leave the office because he thinks that the the ballots are going to be swayed and they're going to be fake and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I look at all this stuff and I say, hey, that's a power struggle. Mm-hmm. Every one of those is a power struggle. Um, how do we diffuse that power struggle? Yeah, power is a huge one for yeah. us. Yeah. And I yeah. think something very um, intrinsic to us as human beings in this guise as we're walking the earth in this time, so that we are navigating power, you know, and it's something that really calls us, kind of calls us into the fire. Um, one of my instincts is to say, I want to make it explicit. I think that power sometimes has that shadowy or can invoke fear when it's not really being fully named. And in that regard, it's really interesting to acknowledge and identify the various different sources of power. So if we talk about, you know, if we talk about sort of the president and where he's sitting and the way that he's holding on to power, acknowledging that that comes from a certain system, which has been tacitly sort of agreed to or consented to over very many hundreds of years. It's a system that's affording that level of power, Mm -hmm. access to resources, access to um, a privileged group, the ability to influence an important decision, um, your ethical or moral sensibility, these can also be sources of power. When we do conflict um, analysis and look at people in different groups in a society, it's really interesting to look at what are the resources available. Some groups have historically and will continue to undermine the actual, some of the resources of power that they might have. So what I want basically is what I'm saying is a conscious conversation about where these things, and then if you live in a society that has the desire to create more um, equality and equity and fairness, then redesigning processes so that power is being held in a more fairly distributed power with rather than power over way will lead to more beneficial processes that would hopefully invite more voices into a space where decisions are being made. Because I do think it's about ability to influence at its core, I think, when we really look at power. But I think we need to tend to ourselves and what we're experiencing, you know, in our first person eye, it's very easy to comment on society, but really for ourselves, it's really interesting to ask, like, where do I feel like I actually exert power? You know, some of us are more identified with, oh, no, I, I, you know, I don't do that. It might be that power is in shadow for us. Um, so I think that um, it's really important to make things explicit. I really think it's important to also, because if we were able to do that, when you give the example like you did this morning, and I know I don't want to go into a sinkhole with it, um, but if people were able to acknowledge that, say, the system, the institutions had afforded power to that one person in society in a way which we were no longer happy with, the system itself would be, then be in a better position to talk about that and ask what kind of, kinds of changes do we really need to make. I, I know would say very- you're right. No, no. The analogy there is correct. The system has afforded that power. And you guys even quoted Margaret Wheatley, and I appreciate that because of mm. her work with ecosystems, right? So within our government, there is just the, just that. And I think that is true it affords that power uh the question is is when does that power and maybe this isn't the right question but just a comment how's that uh become abusive 
Uh, so I think that's a personal commentary and my listeners know me well enough that it's like, yeah, that is my commentary. But do you say that we have, uh, that when we explore our differences, acknowledge them and getting to know them, we create a deeper functioning wholeness, equality and social coherence. How can we explore our diversity in a way that creates bonds and can include all the ways we are different? Um, and so what I'm going to ask here is what actions in particular or an elevated state of mindfulness uh, can we work to achieve to better, uh, to better understanding our wholeness? This goes along with evolution of consciousness. I know Ken Wilber commented on your book. Uh, many of my listeners are deeply spiritual people. They read a lot of Shambhala books. Uh, the point here is, is that all of this is leading to an evolution and a vibratory shift in people to a higher level of consciousness, including your book, uh, Compassionate Conversations, right? You can imagine now taking your book and giving it to every lawyer and making it part of their uh, if, if they were a trial lawyer having to use that, I don't know how many cases they're going to win, but my point is wait, I'd love to see that evolution. So what do people, what do p- actions would people do to actually evolve that consciousness? Um, it's a really good question. Let me just address something quickly that you said in there. Cause I think it's really interesting um, about if the lawyers were all compassionate, how would that affect their success rate? Um, One of the things that I think I have become sensitive to in writing this book is how um, compassion, sometimes mainstream compassion gets a bad rep. It's seen as soft. It's seen as kind of weak. There's a risk of being Uh a pushover. There's a risk of being taken advantage of. And, And so I just really want to sort of dispel that, you know, off the bat and say that compassion um, compassion is, is shapeless, formless. It goes to serve the whole whenever there's the opportunity, regardless of what that is. What that means is that compassion is not just weak and folding. Compassion can be fierce. Compassion can be direct. I would, I would hope that if a lawyer had read our book and integrated what we had tried to teach them about the multiple perspectives, the working with our bodies, the speaking truth, to, you know, truth directly, integrating others' differences, I would expect and hope that that lawyer would be a far more effective instrument of justice mm. by adopting some of the, the lessons. But <laughs> thanks for letting me add that in. I, I think it's, uh, it's a point that's kind of sparking in me. Um, when you talk about actions or practices, like what would help people to cultivate a sense of wholeness. mindfulness or being that would support their wholeness? Um, I think I'll go back to something that I said earlier about working with our bodies. I think that, yes, you know, I, and I really appreciate you and those in your community who are dwelling in this world, including the spiritual, the emotional, the etheric, you know, into their, into their daily life. Um, what we've learned from the great traditions is that there are certain ways of, of practicing that will help us downregulate times of stress to create more safety and belonging. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's one of the sort of bedrocks that goes in there for creating an experience of wholeness. It's that everything belongs. Nothing is excluded. Nothing is left out. All of this, the messy things and the un- unattractive things that we don't like, the unjust things, it's all part of this too. It's part of our evolution. At our history of what we know works, um, vocalization, singing, chanting, 
um, embodiment practices, yoga, tai chi, walking, swimming, you know, and stillness practices, meditation. So I think all those three are powerful. They're time-tested, trusted. And we know that when we work with our bodies and learn to work with our nervous systems in more helpful ways, we can, because it's about those moments when we're in the encounter that we lose our cool. That's when things can begin to escalate. It's when we lose patience. It's when we start judging the other person in our mind, thinking that we know. Mm-hmm. That's when we miss the opportunity. So it's about really increasing, just stretching that out in the moment. Can I stay here for five more minutes and learn to listen, drop in, ask a different question? Um, working with our bodies will allow us to stay in that moment rather than tapping out because our our you know hormonal system, our adrenaline, our cortisol, our norepinephrine has been sparked, and we just because that blocks us from listening. Um, so I think that those are the practices that I want to encourage people with, like stay with your yoga, notice how it affects your relationship at home when you're with your partner. How do you speak to them? Where do you get triggered? And really start to like take notice, be a scientist for what's happening in your body because there's so much wisdom that's being communicated to us. I think that, you know, for our listeners in particular, that is so important as a reminder. You know, it's easy to kind of fall off the path and stop your meditations or or go do something else because something, even with this COVID, you know, I think we'd have all this time. It seems to be that people are a little bit more tense. Um, and it, and I, I would say even for me, a little bit more forgetful. You know, it's because there's, there's, this, um, there's this interesting something in the air right? Um, Hard to explain. But you guys talk about three fundamental perspectives through which we orient ourselves to truth. What are these three fundamental perspectives and how does this interface uh, with being able to communicate with one another with the compassion and understanding? Now, I think for time purposes, we don't have time to go real deep into those, maybe more of a mention, but I'm going to recommend to my listeners hold up the book again, go get the book, and Mm -hmm. you will understand these in more depth. Um, Again, this is a book for anybody. I'm just going to put a plug in, a shameful plug, that if you want to improve communications, uh, there was a a saying once, um, I have a nonprofit called Compassionate Communications, and there's a saying once that we've all heard, um, would you rather be in love or would you rather be right? And I, I think that sums up a lot of much of what it is. A lot of people today are trying to be right um, versus be, loving themselves and even loving the other person because now we're talking about compassion and love. So what would you? what are these three fundamental perspectives? I thought it was fascinating. I didn't know mm-hmm. much about it. Thank you. Yeah, this is our, um, we have a whole chapter on this, like what, what is true? What do we debate to be true? Because one of the, the things that we say in the book is that a lot of our arguments, our disputes, are, we're fighting about what we can agree to be true or what we right. disagree about being true. So um, the first person truth is what we hold in our eye, our sovereign self. And it is true simply if you have that experience of it. So um, you, don't, you don't need anyone else to to verify it. If it's true for you, it's true for you. The the second person the second truth is the the second person. It's the other. And it's when you can drop your sense of self to join with them. And that's when the you becomes a we. 
even if temporarily. So that's the second person truth. It also mm-hmm. includes all our social norms, the ways that our culture sort of builds on this is how we do it around here, um, religion. So then the third person truth, the third truth is the objective world, the it, the fact that this is a planet around spherical, the fact that we have a galaxy. These things are objective third person truths. The fact that a man was killed in the street, you know, these are truths. And sometimes where we fall into problems is when our I, our initial first person here, pretends to be a we. Maybe I make a claim that it's including you because I want to build more power to be, you know, as if I'm representative of a wider body of people to Mm -hmm. give my statement more sense of truth. Mm -hmm. But that's an inflation. If I shouldn't be speaking for you, I shouldn't be speaking for you. And if you're someone who doesn't like me, you're going to take issue with me doing that, right? And then another thing that can happen is the I, first person pretending to be an it. Maybe what I believe, I'm going to project out there to be as an objective, absolute truth. Mm -hmm. People are definitely going to take issue with that. You know, sometimes some people have the opposite where they can't even take their first person because maybe for whatever reason, they've been brought up in a society or a set of rules where they've had to live in the second person space. It's about what we, our family, believe to be true rather than you individually. Maybe people who've been oppressed or marginalized, it can be harder to take a first person perspective because your life has not been affirmed and recognized in the same way. Ultimately, just to say, we want to really seek clarity, take the time to break things down. So if someone's asking a question, you don't know what level they're talking from, Firstly, like what level are they t- trying to talk from and why? And then ask a question. Maybe you can help to refine each other's ways of speaking by breaking it down. Is this a belief? Is this someone else's truth? Is this something that we're saying is true in reality and more clarity and care around that should actually reduce our amount of conflicts in that realm. It's, it's so important. This, this topic is, I mean, I could probably talk all day just about this because, you know, so much of the conflict that occurs, occurs as a result of this misunderstanding of these truths. It's a truth maybe for them because it's coming from there or they're projecting themselves as the it or the we, but truly it's them. And then when you tell them that's your truth, not mine, <laughs> right? Um, that's then what put, raises up with inside of people lots of conflict um, because they think they've included you, like you just said, in the conversation, and they put you in as the we. And you're like, well, no, that's not my truth. That's your truth. <laughs> and that's what causes this. Now, you state that having a clear intention will literally help us navigate our conversations uh, when we encounter difficult terrain. You state to enter a conversation without an intention is like walking into the wilderness without a compass. I love that one because most people, before they start a conversation, they do not have an intention. I guarantee you. What advice would you give our listeners about being more intentional in their conversations? I, I love this question because I love this part of the book. I think it is hugely important, actually, um, to set intentions and learn for ourselves what our real motivations are. You know, sometimes we we think, oh, I just have to say this to this person. And we kind of shortcut ourselves. But what's behind that? Like, is it about having something to prove? Is it because your truth feels threatened in these circumstances and you need to put a stake in the ground? 
Um, are you uncomfortable with their view of the world? Is there something triggering to you about the way that they are doing and living? You know, are you scared of the consequences of that way of being? And so just like unpacking a little bit, like what is our motivation for engaging in this? Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that if we can take some time to process that, you know, because we can hold intentions too, like my intention is to go in and just improve mutual understanding or my intention is to go in and actually come out with a decision. We should decide on something based on this conversation, how we're going to proceed in the future. If you have crossed motivations with someone else, you might be coming in with that intention, right? Let's process through this and come to a decision. If they're coming in with an intention of, oh my gosh, I just need to be heard on this specific thing. And I don't want to be softened in this moment. That's not going to, you know, you can see how the wires are going to cross really quickly if you're just holding that different intention. So the advice that I would offer to people is to talk about it. Mm -hmm. When they start a conversation with someone, share your intention, take time to formulate that. Like, what do you really want here? Maybe this is just about forging a better connection and just learning about each other. If you voice that in the beginning, in the beginning it's going to change the tone of that conversation, and you also have an opportunity to ask what theirs is. Invite them so, into that. So, so important. And if any of my listeners just take this away, just this, it, it's worth it. Um, because so infrequently are the intentions really expressed. You know, there's an underlying intention to probably every conversation. And some of it uh, may be a little bit more subconscious uh, and an intention, but it is there. So, Kim, in the age of COVID-19, our world's uh, communication has been relegated to texts, emails, phone calls, Zoom calls like we're on right now, and very little human interaction. Uh, What advice would you give our listeners that are uh, having about having more meaningful conversation without the anxiety, because there's a tremendous amount of isolation right now. Uh, People feeling anxious about that. They'd like to make a closer connection. Hey, I want to go down to the local uh, coffee shop and just sit and talk to somebody, but it's not available. Uh, I want to sit in a restaurant, just have a meal and talk to somebody and have a a compassionate conversation. Um, What would you tell them about all this? Because our world now is pretty much relegated to these screens. I know I spend Mm. five or six meetings a day, just Mm. like what we're doing right here. And by the end of the day, it's not that I don't love Zoom, but I'm not really that much in love with Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, I can completely relate. yeah, these are these are very specific and unique times that we're in and we're feeling the rub. And I believe that you're right. Anxiety is a manifestation of all those ways in which we're not really being sated in a multidimensional way. Um, and I think that the what I'll just speak for my first person. What really, <clears throat> excuse me, helps me is anything I can do to put myself back in my body very regularly. That might mean getting up in between Zoom calls and refilling my water glass. And when I'm at the kitchen, taking a stretch while I'm there, breathing with my head upside down, just relaxing the mind is something that I think that um, is easier for me when I go via the body. If I try and sit and tell my mind to chill out, mm-hmm. it's a bit like you know, the fish talking to the fish. It's uh, It's got to come from somewhere else. And when I can do it via my body of relaxing my mind, for me that soothes a sense of anxiety. Because anxiety 
is an interesting one. Like fear has a target, I believe. Anxiety doesn't really have that that target. It's more it's more like a cloud. Um, it's not as directed in that way. One thing that I think that can be helpful for us is having conversations to include that when we start our Zoom calls, when we have our check ins. To, to be there and listen to one another because I believe that just profound listening in and itself is like it's healing and it does support us. So if you're having that experience and you feel like you're in this loop by yourself, share it with someone, connect Too bad about we it. We didn't do our meditation together online <laughs> here with Zoom before we started the call. That was my fault. I should have set the intention with that. And you've reminded me because, you know, I used to start a lot of the podcasts with me expressing the intention. And it's amazing how much smoother things go because that just hearing that was important for the other person. But I, your point about getting up, stretching in between, you know, doing those kind of things I think is really important. So let's go to our concluding question question. It's not 11 because we didn't get through all of them, but I'm so fascinated by what you guys have done. Um, if you were to provide our listeners with sound advice during these what seem to be unusually tense and conflicted times with our differences, the injustices in society and humanity, what can you impart as an action? And I always put action because I, I want my listeners to actually walk away saying, oh, this was valuable to me, to engage in and or to notice about the psyche and our spirituality and the way that we can transmute these flawed elements of our personality to be more compassionate to the other souls on their journey. And I'm going to underline that on their journey here on planet earth. And when I say that we seem to forget a lot of people think you should be taking their journey, not your own journey. And sometimes it's just you have to leave them alone and let them take their own journey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I just was curious if you had any thoughts about that. I know it's a long question. It's a very long question, but um, I had a hard time wording it when I read that part of the book. Uh Well, I, I agree with you that landing on action is a good place to close the circle. Like, what do we do with learning and insights? Like, oh, oh, we take it out into the world. That's what we do. We take the yoga off the mat. We build it into how we live. The recommendation that I would make is to listen, is to listen, listen deeply, actively, reflectively. Um, we go, we go into this, into the book because we believe it is just such a fundamental skill. Um, and I would say for anyone who, and, you know, it's like, choose the domain. Where is it that you're being tested? How intensely would you like to practice? For someone who, maybe this is part of their work, maybe they need to understand others in order to move this thing forward that they're working on, you know? And so I would invite them to like really practice in that domain. And for those people who are just like, well, no, it's, it's in my life generally, I would say, pick a person one in every day, pick one person and make the commitment to listen really, really deeply. And I'll just give a few instructions as to how I think this should, this should be done. Um, firstly, the intention, the intention to listen deeply. Secondly, the letting self-referential kinds of commentary. Oh, how does that affect me? 
oh, what do I think about that? Or where do I reject that and re- refute that? And, you know, I have a different story. Drop all of that. It's temporary. You can find it later if you need to. But let yourself know you are putting that down. You are emptying out so that you can really be present and be generous. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your face, your connection. And you're letting them tell you what it is like to be them. And I like the way you put be more compassionate to other souls. We can do this with human beings. We can do this with plants. We can do this with water. We can sit and listen and be like, what is it like to be you? Tell me your story. Tell me your experience. And then the active part is, I mean, first of all, it's an active part to do that, to receive it. And then what's wonderful is when we can give each other the experience of being heard, reflecting back some words that you said, that they said that they were meaningful to you, or asking them a question about some part of it, or you know, asking them if there's anything they want to emphasize or clarify or like what would help them in it. and just get into that mode of being receptive. Yeah. I think that this will help us all tremendously, especially in this moment where many voices are emerging into the space, including like previously marginalized and oppressed peoples and people who have not told their story of their suffering. We have to be able to listen and not look away and allow ourselves to be reforged in this fire of love in a way that is wakeful and compassionate and rising. Um, and one thing I'd add is if you every, you know, cause doing 808 podcasts so far, <laughs> listen with the, in- listen with the intent to learn. And I think that if you walk away with something, it, it's different perspective that can be incorporated into how you perceive the world. Mm-hmm. It's valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Every little piece. A um, lot of people start a conversation with, well, what can I tell somebody? You know, what can I inform them? Because again, that goes back to the power. It's important for me to get my point across. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been said many times is most people are just listening so that they can wait to comment about whatever it is, right? And it's not a comment that's inclusionary of what the other person said. It's just a comment. (laughs) It's just that's the way it is. So you guys have, I mean, you and your fellow authors have created a book that I'm just going to pull it up again, that everybody needs to get and read. This is a Shambhala book. It is on Amazon. It is in Kindle version. It's in every version possible that you want to get. It's not an audiobook though, is it? Not, not, not yet. Really. Well, it might be an audiobook too, but the reality is you don't need the audiobook. Just come to Inside Personal Growth and listen to Kim's interview and you'll be fine with that. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Kim, for joining us from Humboldt, the beautiful area, the Redwoods, uh, sharing some of your compassionate conversations with my listeners about your great new book, um, and again, we'll put links to there. We'll put links to Kim's website. Um, we'll probably put links to the other two authors' websites as well. And if there is a book website, we'll have the book website link in on this as well. Kim, uh, namaste to you. Thank you. Blessings to you and everything that you're doing to actually bring more peace, tranquility, and compassion to the world. Thanks so much. Thank you, Greg. Namaste. I'm so, so grateful to be able to have this conversation with you. And thank you for your curiosity and for wanting to share this work with your listeners. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Let me turn off the recording.